And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with CFA Institute. And today, my guest is Matt Muscardi, CEO of Free Float Media. Matt, we've known each other a long, too long. We've both been in the ESG sustainability game too long. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about your background, how you got here, and, and, uh, and then we'll jump into things in more detail. I, I'll give you some of the sorted details. Ex- excellent. I started as a mediocre rock musician in the East Village. Um, I actually majored in music. Wait, wait, when, when, when were you in the East Village? Because I was in the East Village as well. Oh, two, oh, three-ish, oh, oh, one, two, three-ish, right, somewhere in there. We were neighbors then. Um, I was for a there, couple years. I was there 2000 to 2002, I think, yeah. Oh, so you probably were drunk in a bar near a different bar that I was also drunk in. Um, or, or playing music That's in. the way the East Village worked. <laughs> But like, what? Where would you play? Oh, we played CBs before yeah. it closed. Yeah, we played. We spent a lot of time in like the Lions Den, and we played uh, the Continental. Ooh, nice! That place was a <laughs> hole. I'll tell yes, you, it was. that was awesome. Language. Was this is a family show. Oh, it was an <laughs> s hole. It was great. It was a. It was. It was a good time to be there yeah. doing that thing. Oh, cool! Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I like I got tats, bleached my hair, mm. you know. It was we were the pinnacle of mediocrity. But then uh, you know, I chased my then girlfriend, now wife, to California when she left the East Village, and I took a job as a janitor at a financial advisory firm. Mm-hmm. And turns out they needed somebody to get licensed and they chose the janitor. So I got myself fully licensed. And uh, got into green investing while I was out there. It was yeah. green investing then. Um, right, right. Got a gig at Ceres for a little while, doing like advocacy work. And I'm a capitalist, so it didn't work for me. And then I took a contract gig at Risk Metrics right before turning into MSCI, right. where I spent nearly 10 years. And now we started Free Float with Damian Rollis, who's another vet of MSCI, but GMI and corporate library, old school governance. Yeah, yeah, I came and from GMI. Inv- yeah. yeah, yeah, he came from the old school. Um, and we invented board saber metrics. So we treat corporate boards like saber metrics treats the Boston Celtics. That's basically what we do now. And we have a podcast where we are snarky and make jokes. Yeah, I recommend the podcast. If you want a little bit of snark in your day around what's going on in the business world or the finance world, it's a good half hour or so just to just to cleanse cleanse your palate of of, of that. Well, well, a little, That's very a little, kind of you. I'll send you your gift certificate <laughs> after the show. Well, a little bit more about what is what does board sabermetrics do? I mean, I know you said broad strokes, kind of what Bill James does for baseball, but what does that mean? 
I mean, it's the same idea. So we, we started off really our story in the show when we left MSCI, we got obsessed with Boeing post mm -hmm. crashes of the planes mm -hmm. and we felt very unsatisfied by a lot of the stories about like how a decision gets made to fast track these things. Right. And it was a lot of attention paid to like who was on the board when that happened, but nobody asked the question how that board was constructed. So we went backwards almost 30 years, hand collected data about the Boeing board mm -hmm. and found out that they were all interconnected for years and years and years. In fact, one guy whose name's Ken Duberstein, he died um, last year, I think. He was with the Reagan administration and he left to become a lobbyist he was pulling the board members from his lobbying clients. They almost were exclusively his lobbying clients, CEOs wow. or executives that he put on the board. So he got into this idea of like, how do these teams get constructed yeah. effectively? Yeah. And who in, who's the most influential on them? And we realized we could measure it. So the idea of board sabermetrics, we've taken 10, 12 years of board histories constructed them like teams and started treating them like how do we identify who the alpha is who mm. who's along for the ride and then how can we measure their performance so we look at performance of of uh, directors relative to how influential they are in decision making and we literally treat them like sports teams that's how we uh, attack it and so like what are some of the broad things you found that would either inspire us or, or depress us well it's only depressing. Are you kidding? It's, it's, we're, talking, we're having ESG conversations. We're just right. here to depress ourselves. I just um, thought, I thought I'd throw that word out there just to give people hope and then crush them. <laughs> no, then dash it. Good. Yeah. And now they're crying. Yeah. If there's anybody who hasn't turned it off now, the, the fact is w one of the things that we noticed, I mean, we noticed really quickly, and I think this gels with what your gut would tell you, is diversity is has been a very check the box exercise yeah add a person of color add women to the board <clears throat> that kind of thing mm -hmm. and when you marry diversity the check the box like percentages with influence you realize that the vast majority of diversity is marginalized in an actual social dynamic mm -hmm. so in the boardroom themselves when it comes to decision making the decision making is usually usually consolidated to a few people, generally the CEO, generally white males. I mean, of which I am one. So I'm grateful that I get to lean into my privilege, but the, the sort of diversity exercises leave out a lot. And I also found, the second thing we found as we went further on, we, we have activist investors who use some of what we do, mm -hmm. is that the market is woefully behind when it comes to measuring management. They, we use sort of corporate outputs as indicators that management's doing a good job, but we don't use human outputs or human inputs even. And so we're finding when you can ascribe performance to an individual, you actually see where gaps are on management teams way better than you can if you're just looking at the company. Oh, cool. No, well, people should check that out. We, we don't... We don't have time to go into that in more detail, but we've teased people a little bit, and hopefully some people will come your way. Uh, I, I don't worry. I'll pimp it multiple times. <laughs> I'll just, just keep bringing it up accidentally. No, I, I, I myself will probably follow up with you guys because I'd be interested in some of that data, but uh, we'll just tease people and we'll get on to other things. One of the things I do with my guests is I ask them to give me kind of one fact, or it doesn't have to be one, one fact or one number that kind of helps frame this conversation we're going to have, and it doesn't have to be one again. And I made the mistake of accepting a challenge from uh, 
uh, a guest, Ben Yo, three or four podcasts ago, ben. to do yeah. to he was going to quiz me, and so I open that up to you as well. If you've got some facts or figures that you can quiz me on on this, this and what we're going to kind of focus mostly on today is. Matt, for those who don't know, uh, was one of the people behind the Manhattan Project of creating ESG ratings at MSCI and, and the same destructive potential That's great. in that metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so give me a little idea. Of, you know, and we're going to talk about the state of ratings, state of ESG. So give me your thoughts. Quiz me uh, th these facts and figures. Let's see how I do. All right. I'll give you, I'll give you two questions. Okay. And this is partially off the top. Because if I, if if I'd known I was going to quiz you, I would have given like a thirty. It would you work at the CFA? I would have given you like a thirty question quiz, and would have been so detailed as to you would have hated yourself on the way out. But instead, I'm just going to do two. Okay, that's right. I'm making fun of you, the CFA. Yeah, I, I got my I got my charter almost twenty years ago, so I all that knowledge is gone. I failed mine more, much more recently than that. <laughs> here here are two questions for you. Number right. one. Give me the number, the percentage of companies in the U.S., publicly okay. traded companies, that had to restate their audited financials in the last two years. Percentage in the U.S., so all, not like S&P 500, but all companies. All companies. All yeah. companies, precision in the U.S., who had to restate their financials in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Almost say 24%. Way less. 25% was the number Post-financial crisis, okay, 25% was the number of companies that had to restate their financials in the U.S. It was astronomical. 10%, they okay. had to restate in some way is the real number. Okay. So fail. <laughs> but question number two, okay, give me the percentage of companies that have made a voluntary carbon pledge, some kind, reduced carbon, carbon yeah. target, that restated or dropped mysteriously, restated or dropped, because they usually don't announce it. How many companies did that in the last 20 years? We have 20 years of data for that. Wait, wait, restated or dropped? What do you mean, restated or dropped? As in, I announced that I'm going to re reduce carbon by 20% from a 2010 baseline. Right. And then, uh, and I'll do it in the next five years. And then four years go by, and I say now, oh, I'm going to reduce it by 4% from a 2010 baseline by next year, right? Like you're just changing up. You're changing up midstream in the hopes that no one remembers the original right. one you did. But so you're, 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 so you're asking percentage of companies who restated their promise, basically. On, on and effectively, that's, that's yeah. Your, in what? Vow breakers. Yeah, vow breakers. Uh, in the last what? What's the time frame here? I got 20 years of history on that. Okay. But on average. Percentage of companies who broke their net zero promise and hope no one would, was listening. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go 12%. It is 13%. Oh, nice. And so now... Did, okay, go ahead. You, when you combine those two things together, yeah, that's, my, that's one of my favorite facts, which is we like to complain loudly about how bad voluntary data is and mm -hmm. all the ESG data is. Right. But in fact, is it really worse than a lot of the audited financials that we get? And the answer is often, I mean, look, I'm in the data, so I can tell you that the data isn't amazing, but it's also way better than you think it is. 
And the data you love so much in traditional finance is way worse than you think it is in a lot Agreed. of cases. Agreed. It's interesting you bring that up. I was just on a call this morning on the, uh, there's like an hour and a half call on the SEC climate disclosures you know, we're, mm. we're putting together. And we, I did a podcast with a colleague of mine and uh, an auditor from PwC a couple of weeks ago on it. And we're having a meeting today to kind of go through some of the final things because it's due next week or I think the end of this week. And a lot of it was that kind of question. It's like, how useful is this going to be? You know, scope one, scope two, scope three, that's not a financial measure. And a lot of it is just estimating things and and how good is mandating a, a small cap software company give you scope two emissions, what is that going to do, right? You know, and that, yes, and scope one and scope two emissions are, oh, I forget the exact number, but it's usually about 20, 30% of your average company's emissions and the rest is scope three, which is much more difficult to get to. Those are going to be estimates. They're going to be delayed in a lot of cases, if you even get them at all. We're only going to get them if companies have made a promise for them or they're deemed to be material, by that company and some companies will say, hey, it's just not material. So, yeah, the and, and that's a big concern is we got to start somewhere with this climate data. Some of it, we're just doing this. We're not sure what we're going to get. We're not sure how meaningful it's going to be. And some people are complaining that, well, if it's not perfect, don't do it. And it's going to be a mess. It's, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess, of course. But it's going to get us. It's going to get us to a better place. And think back to when we were starting this whole governance world, just the how horrible the data data was. I remember, and one of my first guests on the podcast was Curtis Ravenel, and and he's he's now with yeah, uh, Curtis. he's now with uh, he's now saving the world with TCFT and those that group. But back in the day, I met him in two thousand five, and they were at Bloomberg. They were just starting to collect all this stuff, and that's grown by leaps and bounds. So yes. The data is terrible, but it's a lot less terrible than it used to be. It's the, but it's the idea that the data is terrible, therefore we can't use it. Right. But the thing that we use that we think is not terrible, the, the gold standard of data. Yep. There was a study this year, earlier this year, that showed in an oil supply shock, companies are stimulated to manipulate earnings. That's it. They did it like a, you know, they look backwards at past oil shocks yeah. and they said, so the earnings management happens more often. There was another study a few days ago, like last week, I think, mm -hmm. um, that found earnings autocorrelation is negatively associated with restatements and auditor fees. Meaning right. when quarter over quarter earnings change a lot, auditors charge more and restatements happen more often. Yeah. Which means the data that we think of as a gold standard is subject to a lot of assumptions, a lot of management choices. Yep. My neighbor of the street was a accountant at um, Comcast. And he they wanted to replace their parking lot. And he had to call all the way up the chain to the comptroller of Comcast, and this is some years ago. Um, and they were deciding, is this a capital improvement? And it goes in that bucket. Or is this ongoing maintenance? And it goes into the other accounting bucket. Mm -hmm. And they went all the way up to the comptroller. And they decided that if you dig 
more than six inches into the ground for what you're doing, then it's a capital improvement. If it's less than six inches, it's not. You know what that was based on? I'm sure a, a, I'm sure it was based on hard science going back to precedent yeah, set by the SEC years, years ago. Scientific yes. evidence? I'm sure. No, it's that, and that's the point, right? Like those decisions are often arbitrary, and when you carry them, like all the capital improvements at Comcast for that year, imagine if they were redoing all of their parking lots in one year. Right. Uh, some percentage of them are magically capital improvements. Some other percentage were not because of an arbitrary rule, and that data we think of as a gold standard yeah. is subject to. A lot. And all of it should be viewed skeptically. That's one of my favorite things about ESG is it takes a lot of critical thinking to look at that data and make something of it. But we've foregone a lot of that critical thinking for some of the assumptions elsewhere. We left it to academics, basically. Yeah. And, and we'll get into more of that. But that gets to one of the one of the things I've seen with ESG is that and I've kind of seen this kind of reckoning for ESG that we're kind of in now coming for for a long time. And that just like anything else, we're, you know, we human beings are simple creatures. And if you give us a number that you tell us stands for everything, we'll say, yes, thank you. Can I have some more of that? And that's not really good analysis. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't be for that if I'm from the CFA or if I just, you know, am a reasonable investor, a reasonable person. No, but in, I mean, in some ways, it's like the market wants, really wants Siskel and Ebert to tell yeah. them that movie gets two thumbs up. And yeah. then if you disagree with it being two thumbs up, you really want to regulate them because you think that they're terrible. They're terrible people for giving it two thumbs up. And that's kind of what's happening with ratings. It's kind of what's, how ESG gets conflated. It's, it, it's a messy... I mean, we were in it years ago when there was nothing. Right. And nobody cared. And I got called a tree hugger so many times. It's like, it's passe. It's just not cool anymore to be calling me a tree hugger. That, like, we know what the mess is, but we made something in the mess. And now we made a mess out of the mess. <laughs> well, let, let's, <laughs> okay. Good. All right, let's go back to, go back to the beginning. You're, you're the Robert Oppenheimer in this, uh, in this uh, tortured metaphor Ooh. of creating destruction through MSCI ratings. Oh, lovely. So... Take us back to kind of because you were a part of that team that you know that started all this and you know what the intention was, kind of how it how it worked and how you've seen it used and misused over the years and kind of where we stand now. I mean, the intention was always the same, and I think like there was a Bloomberg expose outing the intention of it, which hasn't changed for years, which is really focused on how a company is going to lose money given E and S and G factors, right? Risk. Um, it, was, it was about risk, right? Risk. It was yeah. always about risk. It was always about risk and understanding the risk and the potential cost to a company. Was it always clean? It wasn't always clean, but that was the intention. Um, right. And I think early on, and I wasn't involved in the sort of the Innovest, um, or the earliest incarnation, the Innovest incarnation, right. where it was very much the Wild West of creation. It was amazing, amazing people coming up with, you know, making it look like credit ratings, you know, trying to like speak that financial language. Right. Because if we forget that at the time, if if we said zero to 100, no one would listen to us. If we made it a language that was financial, someone might pay attention. Right. Um, right. And now today, MSCI is getting yelled at for using a language that's financial, um, right. which is ironic because it wouldn't have never gotten here without that. Right. But I, I do think the intention was always about risk. And I think actually the approach reflected that. It went from being a wild west to during the time that I was there, sort of like the early 
modern ratings, I'll, I'll call them. Yeah. We focused a lot on what data can we get to show this risk? And we did not sit in a room and say that company should be top and that company's bottom. No one sat in a room and said, this is what good is and this is what bad is. The people there were a motley crew of artists and misfits and puppeteers and chefs and then PhDs and engineers. It was a weird mix of people, interesting, mm -hmm. super interesting people who sat down and said, what does the data say? And we in tried to interpret it. We tried to read it like a story, what we could, and we turned that story into numbers. And today, I think when you have a number, especially because there's many competing numbers and many competing approaches, you know, Sustainalytics didn't start as risk. They started as a mission-driven org about social responsibility, mm -hmm. much like KLD was, but they flipped to risk. And when you have those, like people change, they change the story, they change the narrative, the number means different things, how you construct it matters. It all gets conflated into woke. It all gets conflated into green or sustainable. And mm. those things aren't real things. I mean, it's like we, we were trying to solve a very specific thing at the time, right. which was risk. And I mean, to, to their credit, they did a pretty good job, mostly at the time with what we had. <sighs> So where do you see it? Where do you see things now in the in the ratings game? You know, we talked a little bit about how, and you know, you just talked a little bit about how it's being misused, and just like the term sustainability or ESG or what have you, know, all that vocabulary, it's it's it, it's kind of it's a bit meaningless unless the two people in that conversation agree on what those terms mean before they have that conversation, whether it's an investor and their client or you and I or whatever, because, you know, th that the language people use is, is subjective. Someone says responsible investment in London, it means a very different thing to, you know, someone saying responsible investment in New York and all over the world. So what, you know, standing back from helping to be on that team that created it, you know, all those years ago to where things are now and kind of, as I said, kind of the reckoning that ESG is in, you know, where do you see that, MSCI is part of it, but just ESG more particular. Kind of where are we in that? And where do you see that going? I mean, right now we're confused, right? Like we've conflated ESG to be so many things that it, to your point, it's nothing. And in fact, I love, love the irony that the anti-woke movement is like Texas, in order to make a list of people who are discriminating <clears throat> against fossil fuel companies, had to buy data from MSCI ESG to accomplish it. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. And it gets to the heart of like the confusion, right? ESG is not a thing. It's an acronym. It's actually a badly organized data set. It's the Dewey Decimal System. You, environmental data, social data, governance data. Yeah. Any librarian would be like, that is not how you would organize this thing, right? <laughs> it's, and it's not an outcome. And right. that is the big confusion. ESG is a data set, not an outcome. And that confusion leads to regulation and language changes and focus. And I think ultimately two things happen. We kill the acronym because it's pointless and stupid. It's an organizing convention and it's not a very good one. And I think you see the acronym die over the next few years, five years, 10 years. I don't know. If I'm going to be really super servant, I'll be like seven years from now, there is no ESG acronym, but I don't know when. And I think the second thing is the data gets used in a much more fractious 
way. You're, people start using the data to solve specific problems. So if you're looking to solve climate change, you look at the data that's climate related and you say, which of these data sets actually gets me closer to my solution for climate change? And you are very pointed about it and you use it in a pointed way. And you stop doing the thing where you're constraining tracking error and you stop doing the thing where you're like, I'm climate change, but X tobacco right. because a client asked me to be X tobacco. Right. You start being very specific about what you're solving. <clears throat> and I mean, that's in a way, board sabermetrics for us was a reaction that was like, the ratings don't solve one thing. They solve a panoply of things and they might solve it thematically. We want to solve one thing. We want to point to one thing and solve it. I think that the market goes that way because it has to, because it has to. So where do you, I, I tend to agree with you. I think I see ESG kind of fading away as an acronym. You're not going to, I, the way I describe it when I have these conversations with people about where ESG is going is 10 years ago, you would go to a, a CII conference or an ICGN conference, a big international corporate governance type conference, and there would be one breakout session on ESG on day two, right? And then now you'll have, we're at the point where, we've been to the point where now the keynote speaker is about ESG or sustainability, and you'll have two or three breakout sessions on ESG. Now we're at the point where that organization is having a side conference just on ESG, because it's a hot thing. And now we're kind of in the reckoning where people are realizing, well, this doesn't really mean anything. And it's, I, I love the way you put it. It's not an outcome, but that's what, that's, you know, people want to market to an outcome and sell a fund that's an outcome. Right. And I, and I agree that think that will kind of fade away through, through this reckoning over the, over the next, I think five years is probably, five to seven years is probably a good time frame. And it just becomes an Don't run, run my estimate. Don't, don't, don't give me I'm the doing, five it, years. It's, it's the price is right. I'm just doing, going one. I'll go six. I'll go one below you. <laughs> you go, go, I'll go yeah. six. Don't go over. Uh, I would say five to ten to be conservative. I'd say five to ten. But it just becomes analysis. It's just analysis. It's like, what am I analyzing? All right, I need this data. Is it MSCI data? Is it Bloomberg data? Is it climate data? Is it biodiversity? Whatever it is. What's the problem I'm solving for? Give me that data. And it, it's been such a cultural shift for the industry when i got my charter way back when there was no there was no reading on governance you know much less e and the s and then slowly that made its way into where now i have meetings here at cfa institute with the folks from curriculum about what esg goes in there what readings from climate go in there there's a certificate that came out uh, the uk society started a couple of years ago on esg now they're doing one on climate and it's doing very well because it's it's a hot topic and people want to learn about it and i think that's good but I think that that just gets integrated into people's MBAs. That just gets integrated into people's training at Goldman or Morgan Stanley or wherever they are. Where 20 years ago it was, it was a foreign language, and now it just I, I think it, there's it, a yes, it, but there it just becomes part of what you do. Go ahead. I mean, the but part of that is because I think yes, it does. But I also think that finance is ill-equipped to sort of integrate some of these ideas because it takes a certain level of creativity and i mean i've been in finance long enough to know i don't know about you but it's not exactly like it's full of people like making paintings and sculptures like it takes a certain art to take some data and understand how to use it in a way that's unique and says something and i think that's missing what i actually think 
I used to think that the way the arc of this from a person standpoint was the asset managers buy the data. They realize they have no idea how to use it. They get put together a small team, your ESG sustainability team. That team does some stuff, but mostly what they do is stakeholder manage around the data, Mm -hmm. eventually gets integrated into portfolio managers workflow and they just do it forevermore after that and the ESG teams go away. Right. I actually am beginning to increasingly think you can't get rid of that team. And it's not the team that you have now where they're stakeholder managing. You actually need some level of expertise in the data you're looking at. I've been looking at the data from what feels like six bajillion years. And I can tell you that like, if you ask me deep detailed data about carbon, there are better people suited to answer it than me. I've looked at carbon data. I've got the carbon data. I understand it at the surface. But you want expertise. You want to solve something with carbon data. I'm not quite your guy, right? Yeah. And the portfolio manager isn't your guy. Yeah. Yeah. And the portfolio manager is not your guy. And I, and I, I think that it gets integrated in as much as people say, we're solving for something with this portfolio. So we need to integrate the data. But it's not necessarily the portfolio manager or the MBA who does it. It's also you put them, you pair them with the people who truly understand elements of the the real world solve that's required. I think it's inevitable. No, I think you're exactly right. And I I think the way I would put that is, yes, ESG kind of goes away. And that people realize it's not as simple as, oh, I can just use this acronym and get this number from MSCR or this number from my Bloomberg terminal and I've solved the problem. I can put this, I can link this field in my spreadsheet to this, you know, Reuters data point or this Bloomberg data point or this MSCI data point, or I can follow this MSCI index and problem solved. That we're kind of in the reckoning where people realize it's not that simple. And then we'll get to a point where five years now, seven years from now, you have you know, all of these investment banks have people the, the either who are on staff uh, and, and asset managers as well. People who are on staff are people that they use who are specialists in climate or fisheries, if that's an issue or whatever, whatever it may be. Because you're not, to solve for a specific problem, one amorphous number from the terrible acronym of ESG isn't going to help you. You can say, oh, I did my ESG stuff. Look, I checked that box. But people are realizing that's not really anything. I mean, it it did help you to create a product. And I think that's the biggest problem with it. It was the the acronym was weaponized as a product marketing tool. Right? Agreed. Agreed. If I buy that thing, I can check that box and I can sell that product and I'm done. And now that's where the backlash is. But none of those products actually are solutions. They're effectively products like they've just they may integrate a little bit but they weren't built to be a solution to a problem they were the problem was clients keep asking me for this shit i gotta do something with it Mm -hmm. and that was the problem you solved for and that is a different problem and now we have to de-weaponize it we have to recognize like you know there are firms out there who use this data in very specific ways and and achieve very specific things a lot of impact firms you have climate focused firms you know like generation Asset management born out of the idea of solving the climate using, you know, it's Al Gore solving climate using, you know, finance. Whether or not they do it, the, I, who am I to say? 
But the point is setting out that sort of North Star of what I'm going to achieve was not the way that the ratings were used. They were the way the every or the or ESG data at all. It was used to as a product marketing gimmick, as a way to build a product fast and sell something. Yeah. And and that's why that's what the name of this podcast is sustainability story, because I'm I'm at heart. I'm a story guy. I got my CFA. I know how to do all that stuff. But I, I'm interested more in what's the story of this company or this person or this investment. And it's, it's a story. And you, it, you can't get that from MSCI rating or, or, or an acronym. You have to understand, okay, if someone's saying this is sustainable, what does that mean? What is, what's behind that story? What's the, who are the characters in that story? Does it hold up? Does it make sense? And, you know, I, I think it always has been. And I think it, it always will be more art than science, understanding and integrating this stuff into the investment process. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of folks in this industry who are more you know, math inclined than I am, or your average person is. And that's, kind of, you know, and that's not any knock, that's just the nature of the beast. And I think it's going to take a lot of people learning how to do that stuff and bringing in people who are not necessarily your finance people, those specialists. Uh, that we're talking about that I think you'll see more and more of to get to, all right, this isn't that simple. What's problem A we need to solve? How do we solve it? The reason why Damien and I started the podcast and the podcast podcast called Business Pants, it's like snarky ESG adjacent, ESG related sort of news, but it's really just finance news. The reason why we started it is specifically our, our tagline when we started two years ago was the market is a story. And that that was specifically what we were getting at. We realized if we don't pay attention to the stories that are going on on a daily basis, then we won't know how to apply it when we want to look at something like like we make, like board saver metrics. We have consulting clients who are asking us, like, build us a thing. And it's like, well, your thing needs to tell a story. We need to know what those stories are, what people are doing, what they care about, what's happening in the market, because all of those things matter. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm just agreeing with you because you're the host, but I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> well, you should, if you haven't already, you should listen to the, the podcast that just came out last week. It's with a friend of mine. He, he has a, he's, uh, he's an Irish guy. His name's Terrence Berry. Uh, and he, has a, he lives in the Netherlands with his family, and he has a business. On, he's, he's a storyteller, and he works with companies and investors on storytelling and just breaking down, like, no, what you're, what you're always selling is a story. Whether it's mm-hmm. you're selling a product, yeah. whether you're selling a, a bottle of shampoo, or you're trying to solve climate change, and we talked about that too, of course, you got to know what your story is and how to tell it. And people under, even though they don't think about it every day, people understand stories and they make sense of the world through stories. Whether that's why the sun comes up, or why my investment, you know, went down ten percent today. I mean, it's embedded in the, much as we want to pretend that finance is all math, it's embedded in finance as it is, right? Like Elon Musk is a story and people invest in him because he is a story that has nothing to do with like ESG, not ESG, data, like not data. People believe and that's what you, yeah, that's, that's, it's frightening and uh, cool at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's the way we're wired. You know, we're wired to. Tell stories and to want be to be terrified. To, <laughs> well, yeah, fear is part of it. That's part of our brains, the fight or flight risk. But no, it's story storytelling and, and making sense of the world through stories. All right, before I before I let you go, well, well one thing I was researching you uh, over the over the weekend, and I realized oh, not only 
are you Matt Muscardi? That's true. Amer- American Mas- Matt Muscardi. You are also a 22-year-old rugby player in Italy, Matteo Muscardi. That's true. I think I just offended Spanish and Italian people with that accent. Um, congratulations. <laughs> I, would, I would say who, you're racist, but it's not possible in this who, situation. Who has a podcast? Because I was looking up Matt Muscardi podcast, and he, Matteo Muscardi came up. So I, I think there is a 22-year-old Italian rugby player with your name who has a podcast. I think you, get, you guys Can need, I just say? You guys need to connect. That he came up says a lot about our marketing. That's what that... <laughs> he should have been on you, page six. Yeah, you need to work on search, that. But you need no. to work on that. You need to bust... You need, <laughs> to, you need to get into that ag- algorithm, yeah. <laughs> there's a few Muscardis. I've been, I've been like... Uh, I had, there's another Muscardi out there somewhere who like connected with me on LinkedIn and said, I keep getting connections from people in ESG. Like, I don't know what that is. I think they're looking for you. <laughs> it's like, great. Good. I can't even, can't, no one can find me. That's exactly where I like to be. All right. Well, I'll, I'll leave it to you to, to connect with Mateo. But before we let you go, we let all of our uh, guests talk a little bit about what they're reading, what they're listening to, what they're watching to give you know, our listeners a better understanding of you know, how your mind works, what, uh, for better or for worse. Or, you yeah, know, just don't want if, to do that. if they want to dive into anything deeper that we've talked in, about in the podcast or you, something you think sh- people should be reading, you know, what do you think that is? So I'll let you, I'll let you fill that in. Well, what they should be listening to is when you come on our podcast and we force you to play a ridiculous quiz game and make snarky jokes the whole time. I, um, not a they problem. Should listen to that. Not a problem. No. Well, honestly, I'll, and I'm going to be bluntly honest with like what i've been reading lately we read so much news that that's i spend the majority of my time like reading news but i have been obsessed with reading activision blizzard's proxy updates really because yeah they keep getting shareholder proposals or shareholders who want to vote for sort of like updates to their sexual harassment policies and you know discrimination issues and all that kind of stuff and they keep responding to every one of them in their proxies. So they're writing all these letters talking about how great they are at this. And it's just, it endlessly amuses me. It's just an endless (laughs) source of amusement. Um, So I read, I do, we read a lot of proxy statements. Um, Damien does a segment on our Thursday shows where he does a proxy roundup every single week. And some of the stuff you find is just fantastic. I did watch We Own This City on HBO. I don't know if you saw that. It's by, it's like, it's like the wire only modern basically. Yeah. And it's a, actually a true story. Oh, is it cops um, in Baltimore? Worth a watch. Is it, it's is in it, Baltimore. Yeah. yeah I've seen it. David Simon. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it. I know what it is though. Yeah. Yeah. Good. We'll fully depress you. I'm sure. So yeah. Also watch my cat on a daily basis, bring four or five chipmunks into my office routinely. <laughs> Cause I leave the door open in the back. And then I guess listening to, I mean, I listen to a lot of music. I listen to mostly, this is going to, this is going to make me sound really old, but rather than listening to grunge, which is what I kind of like grew up on. Right. I listen to modern funk remakes of nineties grunge songs. So I listen to like uh, a group called scary pockets do a cover of karma police by the Radiohead. Oh, I um, think that would make me funk very, cover. I think that would make me very sad. Oh, it makes me very happy. Oh, really? It's like that's my happy place. Well, I yeah. like. I like. Like, well, I like. I like the 
I like the grunge and I like the funk, but I don't know if I want those two things together. I'll have to listen to oh. it. I'll have to listen to it. This, you, that's like saying, like, I, I don't think, you know, peanut butter and chocolate go together. Are you insane? It's the greatest thing. You're going to listen to it in the background. You're going to select some songs. You're going to listen to it in the background. You're going to be like, why do I feel so good all of a sudden? And I that's think why. That sounds more like a pineapple cottage, cottage cheese kind of combination. Some, <laughs> some, some people love it. Some people hate it. No, or, nobody loves that. Or, or, or like a Hawaiian pizza. No, I like it. It's you, you got your sweet, your sweet and savory together, yeah. I look, my wife, her family's from Hawaii. They're Chinese Hawaiian. There's no Hawaiian pizza in Hawaii. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I, I got a problem right off the bat. Your authenticity just took a hit. Sorry. I never knew you're cra- you're, you're crashing my worldview. I'm gonna have to reevaluate some things. <laughs> That's right. I, that's what I'm here to do. Destroy your worldview. <laughs> Did you know there's no such thing as Hawaiian pizza? No. Not in Hawaii, there's not. Did you know that Kona coffee is the <laughs> swill that they sent the mainlanders? And oh, be- they, it was a marketing campaign. Oh, I believe it was, that. It's I not like that. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I believe that. So that's uh, the ESG products you're buying. That's Kona coffee right now. Just wait until you get the good stuff. It's out there. You just got to find it. That's <laughs> there we go. See, I just tied a bow on it. Yeah, that's a great way. That's a great way to end things up. All right, Matt. Thanks, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, I will have to threaten you with uh, taking you up on your offer. I'd be happy to join you guys uh, someday. You have to. Yeah. But thanks for you your thanks for your insights. It's always good to see you. Take care. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been too long. It's it's good to catch up, even if it's recorded catching up. It's, yeah. It's, well, uh, it's, well, it'll be. I'm sure with the world opening up again, it'll be in person at some point. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.